This morning we continue our study in Luke's Gospel as we explore the life and the teaching of Jesus. And today's scripture comes to us from Luke chapter 11, uh, verses 33 to 46. No one lights a lamp and puts it in a place where it will be hidden or under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand so that those who come in may see the light. Your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eyes are healthy, your whole body is also full of light. But when they're unhealthy, your body also is full of darkness. See to it then that the light within you is not darkness. Therefore, if your whole body is full of light and no part of it dark, it will be just as full of light as when a lamp shines its light on you. When Jesus had finished speaking, a Pharisee invited him to eat with him, so he went in and reclined at the table. But the Pharisee was surprised when he noticed that Jesus did not first wash before the meal. Then the Lord said to him, Now then, you Pharisees, clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but the inside are full of greed and wickedness. You foolish people, did not the one who made the outside make the inside also? But now as for what's inside you, be generous to the poor, and everything will be clean for you. Woe to you, Pharisees, because you give a tenth of your mint and your rue and all kinds of garden herbs, but you neglect justice and the love of God. You should have practiced the latter without leaving the former undone. Woe to you, Pharisees, because you love the most important seats in the synagogues and respectful greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, because you are like unmarked graves, which people walk over without knowing it. One of the experts in the law answered him, Teacher, when you say these things, you insult us also. And Jesus replied, And you experts in the law, woe to you, because you load people down with burdens they can hardly carry, and you yourselves will not lift one finger to help them. This is the word of the Lord. We're going to explore this passage this morning and see this call to have clear eyes. Jesus is talking about So we're going to look at four things here. The source, the lens, the warning, and the call. Four things, I know. There should be three. But you remember the last two weeks I had two points. And I just, we've got to restore some balance. So you can expect four points next Sunday as well. It's really good homiletics there. Okay, the source. So Jesus reveals himself as the source of God's creation. He reveals himself as the light. Yes, I know we're supposed to live as lights, and we're going to get there, obviously. If you've been in church for any length of time, you understand this. And for those of you who are visiting this morning, and maybe you're not a Christian, but you're exploring Christian faith, you even understand the concept of, uh, you know, we would want to be followers of Jesus and emulate his light. But before we get to the way we should be living, we need to realize what's going on, is that Jesus has put himself on that stand. We're in chapter 11, and up until this point in Luke's gospel, Jesus has done many things to reveal that he is the God of all creation, the God of recreation. He is the light. So united to him, there is a formative effect on how we see ourselves, on how we engage with others, on how we live our lives. In John's portology, he says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and that Jesus was the light that shone into the darkness, and the darkness could not comprehend it. So when Jesus begins this whole thing by saying nobody's hiding the light, they put it on a stand so everybody can see the light, this is a bit of a shot across the bow to the Pharisees who can't seem to grasp that he is the light. He's doing a tremendous amount of 
uh, signs pushing back darkness, pushing back decay. Later in the gospel, he's going to push back death. When you consider the signs that Jesus is doing, he's opening eyes, he's opening ears, the lame are walking. Right? Consider these signs, they're repetitive. He keeps doing the same sorts of miracles, eyes open. Signs point, it's not actually about the healing. We don't, as moderns, we don't need to obsess over the healing. I mean, praise God when we have stories and, uh, and, uh, and moments of just real praise when we experience healing, physical healing. God does this around the world, but this isn't the, uh, this isn't the obsession. Now that it wasn't God's point then, it isn't God's point now. The signs are pointing to renewal that lasts. Jesus rose Lazarus from death, and he died again. So the sign can't be the point. The eyes are open so we can see who he is. The ears are open so we can hear the gospel. The lame are walking so we can get up and live a new life into greater and greater congruence of the one who created us will restore and renew all things, inevitably, eventually. Jesus isn't just doing random miracles for no reason. He's not filling cavities and fixing receding hairlines and making gray beards go black again. It's not what he's up to. And so he says, in verse 33, we're supposed to see this light. And it's to discern, right? Can, can we discern what we're looking at? Do you appreciate and recognize what you're looking at? Later tonight, a lot of people are going to be watching a reaction video by Taylor Swift that's a live stream. And a lot of people are going to be watching it. It's also, I mean, there's also going to be a football game happening. But a lot of people are going to be at, the, at, at these parties because they enjoy the company, they enjoy the food, they enjoy the experience. But they can't really, a lot of people, they're not going to discern what's happening. Now, there's going to be a lot of football nerds that absolutely discern everything that's happening. They're going to get in formation, and then you're going to have all kinds of armchair quarterbacks all over North America. And, oh, I see this guy moved in formation when he went in motion. The safety should have come across, but he didn't because obviously, clearly, when the two good linebackers come in, it's going to be a blitz. And, of course, of course, you're going to get seven yards every time on that play. Pass me the chips. Okay, pal. He could have gone pro. We all get it. But the point is, can you discern what it is that you're looking at? And Jesus is saying, can you discern it or can you not discern it? The Pharisees can't discern him. He keeps giving them obvious signs. And Jesus is revealing that he is greater than the temple, he's greater than the priests, and he's greater than the sacrifices. They can't grasp this. From their point of view, he keeps doing things to just break the, break the rules because he's like some sort of rebel. He's like, man, I'm going to kick the ladder out of the establishment. Like that's how a lot of people think what Jesus did. That's not at all what's happening here. He's continually showing he's the fulfillment of what the temple's pointing to. He's greater than the priest. He's greater than the ultimate sacrifice. Everywhere he goes, he creates pockets where everything that is unclean becomes clean in his presence. He's the light that's on the stand and they can't, they can't grasp it. Jesus is displaying it. He won't, they won't accept it. Let's move on from the source to the lens. So Jesus, being God, he perfectly reveals God's nature. He perfectly interprets the intention of God's law. If you want to know what God is like, you have to look at Jesus. If you look back at the Old Testament, you're saying these, these ancient laws written in an ancient, inaccess very inaccessible language of ancient Hebrew, it's very difficult and clunky to understand. There's cultural idioms all over the place that we can't grasp. There's historical context. It's difficult for us as moderns. We just read it. We say, I don't understand what I'm looking at. You've got to look at Jesus. He is the perfect interpretation of this. 
Jesus is highly accessible. God is abstract. Jesus is concrete. The perfect interpretation of the law. The perfect interpretation of the nature of God. The wisdom of God on display. Psalm 119, 105. Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. This wise guidance of the flourishing of God's law, if we will live according to the wise guidance of his word, God has a way of flourishing. He has a way we ought to look at ourselves in the mirror and think about ourselves. He has a way we ought to think of the people sitting next to us. He has a vision for the city, a way we ought to see ourselves in the city. We're not the saviors of the city. We can't save the city. But also we're not observers of the city. We're ministers indwelled by the power of his spirit to seek the good of our city. God has a vision. And so can we see like he sees? Do we have his lens? Can we have clear eyes? And so this comes with the wise guidance of his word. And of course, there's been massive dislocation since the garden in the human psyche. Because when our first parents forsook God in favor of being God... There was a dislocation from God, from the ways of God, from the nature of God, from seeing like God. There was a dislocation not only from God, but from each other. So there's a relational dissonance there. And then there's a dislocation even within their selves as they feel shame. Everything's dislocated. And then they're dislocated from nature. Right? The the earth is going to be difficult for you to, to work. We're going to have ecological problems. On repeat, right? Like everything got off kilter. Like in the words of C.S. Lewis, like the great machine, like a cog fell and got caught in the great machine. And the whole machine of the cosmos and the universe is sort of grinding and groaning, waiting for renewal. And the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the promise of that renewal. But we have to have this lens in order to see, like God sees Dr. Michael Morrison is the professor of philosophy at Grace Communion Seminary. And he says this about Jesus, uh, the way that Jesus sees and his vision, his lens. He says, Jesus saw the kingdom in a mustard seed. He saw an adoring woman in a prostitute. He saw solid rock in Simon, whose name means reed. He saw a lover of people in James and John, the sons of thunder. In a child, he saw a citizen of heaven. In a bit of bread, he saw his broken body. In a common cup of wine, he saw his sacred blood. Never was there a vision such as this, because never was there a nature such as this. In verse 34, Jesus says, your eye has to be healthy. In the Greek, you'd literally translate it, your eye has to be without folds. It's a little clunky, so in English we say, ah, it's got to be healthy. But if you can imagine, it's an odd visual, but if, an, if your eye had folds... There would, you, wouldn't, you would be seeing, there would be double vision. You'd be seeing multiple things. And so this idea of a healthy eye is this singular vision, undivided focus, no alternative agendas, just full of light, totally transparent. The love of God, the life of God, seeing one another and each other in our city, like the way that God sees it. And to have an eye that is unhealthy could also be translated uh, pain-ridden have an eye that is pain-ridden, that the, the pains and the hurts, the sense of lack, this, the sense of fear, or the, if you forsake God, then you're on an exhaustive treadmill of sort of curating your own meaning for the rest of your life. Curate your meaning, curate your identity, right? Your identity and your meaning and your purpose is not something that's graciously given to you. You've got to go achieve it. And so from that pain-ridden state, 
of not having a security in who you are and whose you are. We can do all manner of things. And the world is the way that it is as a result of this. A modern conversation, of course, is on a collision course. Uh, modern conversation is on a collision course with everything I'm saying. Because the modern conversation would be, no, you don't get your lens from anything or anyone else. You do you. You determine the lens. You decide all of these things and what is true and good and right for yourself. There is no God. You are God. I mean, we don't use that language. We don't say you are God. There is no God. And then, but then oddly, what this does is it, you create a scenario where you deny that there could be an exclusive truth claim. And then you replace it with your own exclusive truth claim. You deny there could be a divine standard that could be wise and good for human flourishing because there is no God. And then all we're left with is our personal preferences that we must exalt as precepts. Precepts that everybody should get on board with in order for us to create this political utopia that we envision. Civic society to flourish in unity. And then we check our news feeds and we go, ah, oh, we're not so good at being God. Check your news feed. Welcome to your heaven. This is our heaven. There is no God. This is what we're left with. So there's got to be this lens. This lens that is healthy, without folds, undivided folks, to see like God sees. This is what Jesus says in this text. And then he gives this stark warning. So let's move on to this incredibly stark warning. The warning is do not take God's name in vain. This directed at the Pharisees, but it's good for us to sit in the seat. We don't, want to, we don't want to see ourselves like we could possibly be Pharisees, but it's important for us to see our capacity, the ability to be very much like the Pharisees, to name the name of God, call ourselves the people of God, and then take God's name in vain by doing things that totally contradict the very nature of God. That's to take his name in vain. It's not to use Jesus Christ in a you know, derogatory, loud way when you bang your thumb with a hammer. Yes, arguably, you have made the name of God common in this visceral way, and that is taking the name of God in vain. But, oh my goodness, that's not the limits of taking the Lord's name in vain. We just live our lives and name, call ourselves the people of God and then relate to the world in a way that does not reflect his nature. That's what's going on here. In verse 8, Jesus goes for lunch. And it, he's not unhygienic. It's not that Jesus did not wash his hands. Jesus washed his hands likely the way you and I washed our hands. You know, we just wash them and we move on. What happened here is that Jesus did not, in verse 8, he did not follow the very extremely technical, specific ceremonial cleansings that the rabbis did. He didn't do that. And it says that this rabbi was astonished. Like, what a phrase, marveled. It, you, you, <laughs> the Greek astonished out of his senses like, like this guy's like just like you know Jesus did not follow the ritual why is he just like oh man the institute oh we're just going to kick the lot no that's not what's going on here why do the rabbis need to do this because they're unclean why did Jesus not bother to do this? He's not unclean. 
by, not wa- by simply not washing his hands. He's making a statement that I'm greater than the temple, I'm greater than the priests, I'm greater than the sacrifice. I am the light that's on the stand. I don't know if you've noticed, but I'm opening eyes and I'm opening ears and the lame are walking. And the, like, you're, you're not catching this? You're still, this is, I'm, the devil is empowering me to do this? Do you see what's happening? And so he doesn't wash his hands. They freak out about it. But he's not unclean. Everybody who comes into contact with Jesus is made clean. You and I are unclean. Constantly, kind of on, constantly living our life, weaving in and out of loving Jesus and then being sinful and we're unclean. But we celebrate every Sunday when we come to confession that we're standing in a borrowed holiness. We are called righteous, even though our day-to-day experience is that we're unclean. This is what it means to be justified, declared a legal term that just declares a status, even though the day-to-day experience doesn't necessarily match the status. And for those who truly love Jesus, we desire more and more that sanctification of there being greater alignment to what is actually declared to be true of us, right? This is the, the proper outworking of marveling at the scandal of grace. And so these religious people, and still today, the self-righteous today, and we can fall into this, obsess over the rules, obsess over the virtue signaling, obsess over looking right, making sure everybody knows how good we are, but their hearts are sick. And they create a culture of guilt. Because when you're self-righteous, nobody's ever good enough. You're always concerned about sin. It's never your sin. You send me the emails. Hey, Pastor Paul, I just want to let you know there's this thing over here that I'm concerned about. Well, that's nice. Why don't you go love somebody? No, I'd rather send you an email because I'm very uncomfortable with this. You see, the difference between Jesus' way of relating to sin and often our way of relating to sin was when we relate to sin, we're often moved by discomfort. Jesus was moved with compassion. And those feel very differently to the one who's in sin. And so... Jesus is giving us huge warning to these Pharisees because they are not marked by humility. They don't relate to people like they themselves need grace. They are repulsed by grace. And self-righteous people are always repulsed by grace. Grace is like music to the ears of those who know they need it, and it's like nails on the chalkboard to those who think they used to need it. So they're always sort of repulsed by it. And so what Jesus does in verse 42 is he speaks very harshly, and we learn something here. Jesus isn't just irritated. He's very intentionally using the tone and the rhythm of the Old Testament prophets. You can hear, like Isaiah and Jeremiah, you can hear the woe to you. And Jesus, Jesus uses this language that they would have been very familiar with, the prophets, and he says, woe to you. Pharisees, and of course the warning comes. And what we learn is the law is for the hard-hearted and God's grace and mercy is for the broken-hearted. That's why Jesus was saying, woe to you Pharisees, but he wasn't saying, woe to you prostitute in the street. There was grace for the broken-hearted, those who knew they desperately needed it. And then, oh, the hard-hearted, the self-righteous, let's remind you what the standard of the law is how you're not close. You dunk it on a nine-foot net, right? And so that's why he says, you're tithing your herbs, you're separating them out with a toothpick, but you're missing justice, you're missing the love of God. Well, you put on quite a show. Very entertaining. 
Now it's time to go. Curtain's finally closing. Go ahead and take it back. Verse 43, Jesus says, You love the best seats in the synagogues and the greetings in the marketplaces. There's no point in being right with God if everybody else doesn't know you're right with God, right? I mean, that's what it's all about, isn't it? And what we learn in this is that the way that they carried themselves is not, I'm here to serve you, it's I'm better than you. So Jesus calls them whitewashed tombs. And he's not, again, he's not just mad and he's not, oh, here's a sick burn, you're whitewashed tombs, bazinga. This is not what Jesus is doing. This is actually a deep cut, this phrase whitewashed tombs, from Numbers chapter 19, where in the ancient world, you can imagine that because, you know, poverty is rampant, there's a lot of unmarked graves, right? And like everywhere. You could walk over a grave and not know that you walked over the grave. So in Numbers chapter 19, the law was if you walk over, an, uh, if you touch a, a grave, even if you don't know it, if it's unmarked, you're unclean. You're unclean for seven days. And God always, by the way, for those of you, you know, exploring Christian faith, you're like, what is it with all this uncleanness? God always made provisions to be clean, and it was very simple. You take a bath. Very simple. But the reason why there was the constant laws that made you unclean was it was a way of reminding the people that their God was not like all the other gods. All the other gods didn't care what you did, who you slept with, who you, whose land you stole. Like, the, all the other gods of the ancient world did not care about, like, a purity and a holiness of heart. So all of these ways you could be unclean were ways for the people of God to be reminded, wow, our God is not like the other gods. He cares deeply about the way that we live our lives, and we ought to reflect Him and image Him, but we so easily don't. So we're constantly having to bathe ourselves. And it's, of course, looking forward to the final work of Christ. So God wasn't saying you're unclean because He wanted to just feel bad for no apparent reason because He's a cosmic killjoy. It was His way of reminding them that they were in desperate need of reunion with him. So, in Numbers chapter 19, you're unclean. So, what they did, because you could do this very easily, was they whitewashed the rock. They marked it. They weren't whitewashing tombs to be like, oh, look how beautiful it is. Like, we put, you know, flowers at a grave site. They were like, when you saw a whitewashed rock, it meant, don't go here. This will make you unclean. Stay away. So Jesus says to the very people that the people of God are supposed to go to so that they can be made clean. Jesus says, you know, it would be good if people just stayed away from you. Because actually everybody who comes in contact with your dead religion becomes unclean. It's, that's way worse than just being like, oh, you're trying to look good on the upside. He's like, actually... It would be better that they stayed away from you. This is, a, this is a massive warning for these religious leaders. And I think it humbles us. This isn't really directed at us historically, contextually. But I think that it's, there's some good diagnostic questions for us to be like, how do I just examine my heart in the way that I relate to people around me? Is it with love and grace and humility? Do I move with compassion or am I moving out of discomfort? Which leads to the, the final thing, which is the call. And the call is to see as God sees. And to see as God sees, it flows from loving what God loves. And when we, when we love someone, we exalt them. And those that we love and those that we exalt, we give their voices power. 
And if you exalt them and you love them and you give their voice power, then their voice has formative effect on how we see. Jesus says in verse 35, see to it that the light is not darkness. It's a little clunky in, in, in English. It's like, see to it that your light isn't dark. But it, he, you could translate it, see to it that your discerning is not obscured. How are you discerning? Yourself, when you look in the mirror, your life, what's going on in the world. How do you discern the challenges and the problems that you face? How do you discern the pain and the sorrow? How do you discern the report from the doctor? How do you dis- I mean, just how do we see life? What is forming the way that we interpret all of these things? Who are the most influential voices in our lives? There's a, there's a phrase in uh, the ancient uh, Jewish culture called... The phrase is to be covered in the dust of your rabbi. In other words, you're following your teacher so closely they kick up the dust and the dust gets on you. To be covered in the dust of your rabbi. Who are your podcast rabbis? Who are your, your streaming service, social media rabbis? Like Who are the most formative voices? And I'm not suggesting, by the way, it would be very naive for me to suggest, make sure that all the voices that we listen to are Christians. Well, I'm not advocating for a modern-day Qumran community where we just sort of like live in the desert and... That's obscene. This is about discernment. It's about being being able to listen to people who have God-given gifts, regardless of their faith in Him or not. They have God-given gifts and they have wisdom that's from God, but can weave in and out of alignment with the wisdom of God. So can we discern it? Can we teach our children to discern it? Right? When when my kids were really little, I used to constantly do parental walkthroughs. We'd be watching, we would be watching uh, Movies, and I'd always pause it when they were little. Okay, do you see what's going on? They're saying this, and this is like an idea, but I'll, as, you know, because we love God, this is how we think about it. Okay, boom, back. And when they were really little, they'd be like, oh, okay. And, this, oh, that was a, and then they got to be, you know, 10, 10 years old, and I'd pause it, and they'd be like, Dad. And then, you know, then they were teenagers, and I'd pause it. No, I'm just kidding. I stopped pausing it by the time they were teenagers. It, it did its work when they were little, it was formative. It got them thinking about it. The parental walkthrough, you know? I mean, can we discern? Or is it just formative? And can we, can we love those who don't share any of our convictions at all? It's like the old adage, this frog jumps into the water and says to the fish, Hey, how's the water? And the fish is like, what's water? Can we discern the cultural waters? Can we discern the cultural ideologies? You know, we don't, I'm not advocating for Christian ghettos, you know, where it's like, hey, make sure everyone who gives you a haircut and changes your oil shares your faith. It's absurd. But can we recognize? Can we see as God sees love how God loves? And the reason I say this is because the Pharisees, I mean, they were in the scriptures more than anybody. But they, they got it dead wrong. And how did they do this? And it, Jesus says in verse 41, you guys need a rental down to the studs. Your hearts are so wrong. You've got to be generous and be clean. You know, how is this, how is it even possible that they got it so wrong? In some ways, the Pharisees were nothing like the culture, but then in other ways, they were exactly like the culture. The Greco-Roman culture was highly stratified. Power, prestige. Who are you? Who's your daddy? What's your family name? Where are your social circles? The Greco-Roman culture was extremely stratified. 
the who's who and the best seats and the dun 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 and the bum bum bum. And they just brought that into the synagogue. So you went into the synagogue and it was, I'm the Pharisee, I'm the Sadducee, I'm an expert in the law, I know the Torah, I memorized the Pentateuch. How's your. It was the same thing. Some ways they were completely different than the culture. Oh, we're righteous and religious. Other ways, exactly the same. The cultural narrative bled into the psyche of the, we'll call them the church, and they just lived it out in the church. How is it possible that the modern conversations can bleed into how we see ourselves, what we see when we look in the mirror, how we relate to the poor, how we relate to each other, how we relate to the city, is it possible? Or can we see as God sees, as we come to the wise guidance of God's word with humility? Oh God, renew me, change me. Do surgery on me, what you need to do. Humility. Practically speaking, with this clear eye, we've got this gospel-driven worldview, and there's a lot that can be said about that. But I'm just going to stick to this text because Jesus says in verses 40 and 46, he just gives two things. He says generosity and seeing those who are burdened and then alleviating the burden. Just that if we just lived outward facing lives, the sort of things that we're talking about that sort of find their way into every sermon here at Redeemer, about giving our time and our resources, caring about the people in the chairs next to us. That's ways of seeing like God sees. I mean, consider this for a moment. Consider that Jesus... I mean, he spent so much time with people in the city that the religious leaders assumed he was up to the same stuff. They're like, this dude is a drunk. This dude is sleeping around. Why would you say that? Because look who he's hanging with. He spent so much time with people that are drunk and sleeping around. He's got to be drunk and sleeping around. I mean, he spent so much time. This was the conclusions that they had come to. But here's the, what always blows my mind is how is it that Jesus didn't agree with anything that the people that he was spending time with in the city were with, and he was still invited to all their parties. He didn't agree with how they saw the poor. He didn't agree with how they used their time. He didn't agree with how they related to sex. He didn't agree with how they used their money. He didn't agree with any of it. But his love for them was palpable. He was constantly telling them to turn from their sin, trust in God, trust in... He was constantly looking them right in the eye, and tell them they needed to repent and turn the life around, and he didn't even blink. But his love was his love was palpable. They, he kept getting invited to everybody's party. He had an unmovable conviction about what was true. But the city loved him. May that be said of us. May the Holy Spirit do a really deep work in our whole life and in our lives in this way. So that we're moved with compassion. We're not moved with discomfort. Oh, i got to just speak to this sin because it makes me so uncomfortable. Well, if, you, if, if, if that's your motivation, you need to just keep quiet. That's the wrong motivation to speak to anybody's sin because you're personally uncomfortable. Because guess what? Your sin's making somebody else uncomfortable. It's just the self-righteousness to the skies. When you, when you are like, oh, this person's sin makes me uncomfortable, that is an announcement that you wished everybody else sinned like you sin. <laughs> I don't know if you know this about Redeemer. Or this is like a fantastic church. It's so good. And we're batting a thousand on sin here. Like, this is a sinny place. I got to tell you, I've been here almost 10 years. But we love Jesus, and we hate our sin, 
We're not playing around with it. So may we be moved to come alongside our brothers and sisters with love and care and compassion, like Jesus with a love that is palpable and make no apologies for calling one another out of sin and into flourishing in a way that does not in any way resemble the Pharisees. Because when this gospel grips our hearts, it reorders our lives. So may we see this work. May we be given clear eyes. Clear eyes, full hearts, can't lose. Coach Taylor got that from Jesus. That's what's going on in this text. May our eyes be full of wise, loving guidance. May we see and live clearly to the glory of the one who saved us in grace. Let's pray.